2: I'm moving now. I'm moving now. Look at this. PGA Tour headline dispends all players taking part in first
1: li- live. Live. I think it's live.
2: Live like the Miami nightclub, right? The Miami nightclub is sponsoring this new tournament. Live.
1: Live. But it's super confusing because it's also the Roman numerals. So it's supposed to be 54 which is the score you would get if you birdied every hole on a par 72 golf course.
3: So wait, is it 54? Is it live? Is it live? I thought it was live as in, am I allowed to say this? Oh
1: my God. Oh Jesus. We're sorry. The number you have dialed is not in service at this time. What is happening? Just went very dark. It just popped into my head. Not everything that pops into your head needs to pop into everyone else's head.
2: Wait a minute. You're telling me the LIV is the name because 54, which is the number you'd have if you birdied every hole? Whoever came up with that must have thrown out their shoulder with that reach. Come on.
1: I mean, they are the Saudis. Are we really thinking there's good judgment going on here?
2: Yeah. Phil Mickelson's trying to play the cool guy. He's not the cool guy. He's got the aviators on. He just watched Top Gun. He's got this leather jacket going. Man, You think this league survives?
1: Does anyone think this league has a chance to compete against? Like with golf, it's about tradition. I'm not tuning in to watch Phil and Dustin Johnson play on a course in a tournament that has no meaning. I want to watch the Masters.
2: Yeah, but if you can bet on it, you're watching.
1: Are we supposed to be supporting this league because it's the underdog? Yeah. Now we got to cover Live or LIV, or 54, no, whatever. No, I can't cover anything with such a stupid name. Well, I'm gonna call it 54, and maybe we'll play
3: some Barry Manilow music, you know, some Studio 54 connections. Who else is around? Is Liza Minnelli still around? Bring her on to talk about 54. Eight the shoe, Paul the runner! Loose ball, it's good! With 4.4 to go, Shannon! Don't wanna fall. Shannon from the corner!
4: And it's over!
3: Cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sidelight. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't
0: even predict it. He says, I guarantee
3: a Jet victory.
0: Oh, my kid, I even in the guy's league.
4: In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself.
0: Underdog. Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness, the longest shot
4: has won the Kentucky Derby. Red strike in a stunning, unbelievable upset. Shock it off in college basketball. Underdog.
1: Underdog I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you they're going to come at you with everything they've got. What is that? going the distance from Creed?
4: 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds the countdown going on right now Borrow! up to Sult 5 seconds left in the game you believe in miracles? Yes! By George the dream
1: is alive! Speed of lightning Roar of thunder Fighting all who run or plunder underdog
2: underdog underdog well then i guess there's only one thing left to do win the whole fucking thing
1: welcome back to the underdogs podcast i'm jordan brenner i'm joined again by eight-time podcaster of the year award winner tom haberstroh and one-time podcaster of Montclair, Peter Keating. It is a joy to be with you guys, as always. Quite a show lined up today. We're going to get into some little horse chatter. Tom's going to vet a bet or bet the vet, something like that. Dick Bavetta. We've got an early, early look at one golfer we like heading into the U.S. Open. And later, our show will be hijacked by some people who will probably never give it back to us as we delve deep Into the underdogs of the Tony Awards. But first, guys, two games to one. Celtics lead heading into game four. What can the Warriors do to get back in? Where is the series? Well, I think Steph's injury is a big deal. We don't
2: know yet what that prognosis is. He got rolled up on by Al Horford there late in the game. Four minutes left. But really, I think it's fascinating that um, Ime Udoka has been winning the chess moves so far in this series. He's going big. Robert Williams looks great. He looks spry. That injury does not look like to be phasing him. Every like every time he lands, it's like Joel Embiid. I'm just like, oh, no, don't fall. Don't hurt yourself. But he he plays really big, plays really strong. And Draymond Green has been awful. And he's been able to, Robert Williams has been able to help off of him and really own the paint. And Udoka Um, Not just with playing Robert Williams and trying to stay big and own the boards and and playing bully ball, but uh, it's really fascinating to me that he's a first-year coach who's able to make these chess moves on the biggest stage and doing it in winning fashion. I did some research and found that Ime Udoka, who used to be on Greg Popovich's staff and used to be on the Phillies staff, Ime Udoka, if he wins, would be the fourth Head coach to win the NBA title in his first season. And I was wondering how that stacked up historically because he got Steve Kerr in 2014, Teron Liu in 2016, Nick Nurse in 2019, and then maybe a May Adoka here in 2022. Do you guys know the previous time that a first year head coach won the NBA title? You mean outside of the window you just talked about? Yeah, Before, before Steve Kerr did it. Hmm. You have to go back to Pat Riley in 82. Oh,
3: wow. Pat Riley.
2: We had a 30-year drought and suddenly it's happening left and right here. And I'm curious if you guys had any theories why maybe is it just turnover that there's more first-year coaches in the NBA, so therefore there's more frequency of them winning the title? Um, Or do you think there's something to the fact that, hey, you need a change of scenery, a fresh voice in the locker room?
1: What about these ideas that certain coaches build and certain coaches finish? that has become sort of trendy in the NBA and that so you normally you wouldn't see like 50-win teams making changes right in in the past you'd wait for a, a big losing season whereas now teams are taking winning teams and still tweaking with the right voice to get them over you know the, that finals hump do you think that could be part of the recent trend
2: that could be i think also You know, Brad Stevens, he was just like, you know what? I I don't want to do this anymore. You need that guy to be like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be the the GM. I want to be the president of basketball operations. Maybe maybe it's the fact that he just tells... He's kind of like uh, this outsider, this underdog who just tells the players what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And Brad Stevens, I think, has a different personality than Ime Udoka. There's a report here in the finals um, that the game changed, that everything changed in Game 3 because <laughs> Ime Udoka was, um, was heard,
1: overheard saying to his players in the timeout, quit playing like assholes. I mean, we've already seen that work with our podcast because when Mays- <laughs> I was just going to say that's familiar <laughs> advice. When Mays jumped in and said, stop podcasting like assholes, we really found our rhythm. It's
3: great advice. Well, we hope so. We hope the returns are in.
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, if we'd gotten rid of Peter, we really would have found a rhythm. But yeah, Maze is a finishing producer, definitely.
3: Mays is not a rebuilding producer. No. I think most times that you have a theory based on changes happening more quickly- Um, it's just not true. Like everybody remembers their favorite team of their youth, as though those players on that favorite team were around for your whole childhood. Then you go back and you look up and you see, oh, that guy was there for a year and a half. Um, you know, before free agency, for example, when teams in any sport needed a new player to replace somebody, they would trade for them or they'd sign them or they would develop them. Now they can sign them as a free agent, but that doesn't mean that rosters are turning over more quickly. But I do wonder If the game itself is changing more quickly, so that there's less of a price to pay for just stepping in and taking over today than there would have been 10 or 20 years ago, do you need continuity in coaching? Like, why would you if there are things about the game that are changing faster than they used to? I'm wondering if it's a game-wide trend, not just something about Udoka.
1: But if the game is changing, it shouldn't make a difference who's coaching
3: well well if it doesn't make a difference who's coaching it means that makes a, a lot less of a difference than it used to
1: right no but i mean I, I just don't see how that relates to the coach if the nature of the sport's changing right if we're shooting more threes we're doing whatever that doesn't mean like a new coach is somehow it, continuity still matters defense still matters like i don't i don't know that we're, we're at a point where we're saying well anyone can just go out there and coach and it doesn't make a difference
2: i think what i would say has a little bit of More than a grain of salt here is the idea of shaking things up or having a a new voice in the room. If you have an older head coach who's been in that position for a long time, I kind of feel like they might be a little bit more stubborn with their ideologies and maybe not willing to adapt. Greg Popovich is famous for adapting, you know, being either playing big or playing small, playing fast, uh, shooting threes, not shooting threes. He hates three-pointers, but he is kind of credited with... Um, adding the corner three-pointer, popularizing the corner three-pointer shot. So um, Pop is the rare exception to this. And also I think Pop is maybe the greatest head coach of all time in the NBA. Well,
1: and you've got two Pop disciples going at it here, right? Right, And, and right. both are flexible in a couple of ways. Steve Kerr has no problem turning to a different player in his rotation, which is actually a very Phil Jackson thing as well, right? He'll play 11 guys in the game. He'll he'll dust someone off who hasn't played for a couple of games in a finals game and go to them. And Ami Udoka, I think the underdog in today's NBA is big guys. And to your point earlier, the Celtics are, are playing not just Robert Williams, they're playing two bigs together uh, with him and Harford. They also, by the way, have a just a big team. Uh, Marcus Smart isn't some tiny point guard, real size on the wings with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I think few teams have been able to punish the Warriors for playing their small, their death lineups over the years, and the Celtics have figured out a way to do it, to not get so burnt at the other end with threes, with space, with pace, and they're, they're generating extra possessions the way we always talk about in college basketball, offensive rebounds, they're blocking shots. Why, why is it working for them when so many teams have tried this and failed? And what's particularly interesting about
3: that is, is that they didn't do that. They didn't rely on all those things Jordan just said, where they, they obviously are doing it against in a, a great job against the Warriors. They took 11 more shots than Golden State, which is why they won, because the team shot just about identically well in Game 3. But the Celtics didn't do that against the Heat or against the Bucks or in the regular season. In all of those cases, they actually outshot their opponents, but they were out-rebounded, including on the offensive end by their opponents. And I'm sitting there thinking, watching Game 3, can it, can it possibly be that the reason Steph Curry... Or, and Clay Thompson are going to come up short against an opponent is because they don't have a who. I mean, who who stopped the Celtics from doing this in the earlier rounds? Bobby Portis, a Brook Lopez, right? Like, I mean, if Draymond Green isn't going to play well at
1: all and he's going to foul out of games, are you going to lose a title for want of a Brook Lopez? That's just crazy. But Tom, why are the Celtics doing this in a way that's other teams haven't been able to do?
2: Well, I think the Celtics have a better defense than any um, opponent that the Warriors have faced, right? Like they, they played the Grizzlies, they, p- they played the, the nuggets and they played um, in the conference finals, the Mavericks. And none of those teams are at the same level as the Boston Celtics. And with Jordan Poole playing the way he is, uh, it is not a pool party actually with clay Thompson, um, Jordan Poole and Steph Curry on the floor when that's somebody peed in the pool. Definitely. Oh yeah. Someone peed in the pool for sure. And, Their offensive rating with those three Splash Brothers, uh, 2.0, they're scoring 107.9 points per 100 possessions. That's awful. For that that kind of offensive talent on the floor, that's really bad. But even worse than that is their defense with those three guys. The Splash Brothers on the floor, 134.2, their defensive rating. So they have a minus 26 net rating with Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, And Jordan Poole on the floor. Like, If you can't score at a high level, you're just giving away the game. And with those three guys on the floor, the the Celtics are punishing them. They're turning them over. Um, They're defending them extremely well. I think the Warriors, Steve Kerr in particular, needs to understand that going big might have been the underdog over the last few years in the NBA. But they need to play Kevon Looney more. Kevon Looney has got to get more minutes than 17 in game three.
1: Real quick, because I feel a song coming on. Adjustments. Game four. Play Looney more. Anything else the Warriors could do to, to shift this thing back? Shut down Draymond's podcast? Shut down Draymond's podcast. Okay. Maybe to just get him focused on the game a little bit more? I mean, do you get a little more athletic? Do you play Kaminga? Do you play Moody? Do you you know you shake it up a little bit like that?
2: No, I think they just need to uh, get Steph healthier, Kavon Looney more minutes, and try to move Poole out of the rotation. I don't think he's giving them anything in
3: this finals. Jordan, as you and I have talked about many times, if you can't go big, what do you do? You can go long. Who has the longest wingspan of anyone on both of these teams? That's right, Looney. Looney, Kavan Looney. Yeah. It's like a condor, not a warrior.
1: Do you like when Peter asks himself a question and then says, that's right? <laughs> I thought you might guess. I thought you might that's guess. Right. That's right. What are we going to do next? That's right. Talk Tony Awards. <laughs> Is that
3: song you hear coming on something to do about pool? Did you say that there, there's no pool party? I think we might have a pool party coming up because, you know, there's trouble that starts with T, that rhymes with P, and it stands for what? Come on. Pool. That's right. Pool. Yeah.
0: With
3: the Tony Awards coming up, we are now going to discuss some hot Broadway action. That's right. And we want to welcome two esteemed guests to help us talk about something because this is a subject that our three usual regular hosts know very little about, except maybe for Jordan, because Jordan is from a long line of appreciators of musical theater if I have his social media posts read correctly. So let's welcome our two guests. Walter Mays is an actor, director, a librarian, professional storyteller who actually goes by the name Walter the Giant Storyteller because he's something like 6'7". Is that right? 6'7", 6'7 and a half? That's me. And he's been a Jeopardy champion what how many times five games right did you win the whole week back in the day when you could only go five
4: games and then i lost the fifth game and then i have a very odd distinction in the old days when jeopardy only jeopardy only went five games i hold the highest four day total that never went to the tournament of champions.
1: Uh, were you up against Sean Connery and Burt Reynolds? What was going on there?
4: No, they're imaginary and they were not <laughs> in my round of jeopardy.
1: You were like the home run champion of the strike or
3: covid shortened seasons. Oh, you just you just lost me. But yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> Was that the category you lost on? No, no, I didn't lose on a category. I went up against a little man with a Hitler mustache named Joseph DiPolito of Fullerton, California. Wow. whose entire life depended upon winning Jeopardy
0: and he destroyed everyone in his path. And how many, how many games did he go on to? He lost in his third game.
3: Oh, But who's counting? We had gone 17 episodes without a Hitler reference. So <laughs> we are already breaking ground. Wait,
2: wait, you forgot his most important
3: little bullet on his bio. Well, I mean, Walter is an actor, a director of many, many, many productions. What else? you want me What's say? his greatest production? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. His most important credit of all, as his bio says, he is the father of a grown son who often says, As long as you can talk, dad, you'll have work. Ah. And that man, of course, is Anthony Mays, our producer. And that quote actually gives you some insight into how Mays has been able to put up with us for so long, (laughs) producing this podcast. (laughs) And we also have with us Eric Schwartzel. If you ever read the Wall Street Journal, you know him because every time you turn around or pick up the paper, he's writing another cover story. He is a Hollywood reporter. He has written dozens, maybe I I would say hundreds. What's the over under on the number of prominent stories you've written about the intersection of culture and entertainment. He's also the author of Red Carpet, an excellent book on how China has come to dominate Hollywood, which is out now, right?
0: Yes, it is. It's been out for about four months. And I listened to a lot of Broadway while writing it. <laughs>
3: in between writing? Or do you actually like to have music or theater on while you're composing? And, like,
0: no, 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 no. Too many words in my head while I'm writing. But like for like breaks and things, there was a lot of Broadway.
1: What was the go-to either track or show? You probably played the most during that period?
0: You know what? It is always into the woods. It's <laughs> always into the woods. I keep coming. It's, I just, you keep going back to the woods. Wow. You care to perhaps perform a little for us? I mean, how long do we have, right? Isn't this just one segment? (laughs) I could do every track top to bottom. I mean, if Walter can handle Cinderella, I can
4: take the rest. I played the narrator slash mysterious man in that show. So you walk away from
0: that show knowing all the parts because you're in every scene just about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no more questions.
1: Yeah, no, we have forever. I don't know how long our audience has, those that are still left, but we can go on and on. Jordan's such a populist, actually worrying about what people think.
0: Yeah, isn't this about the Tony Awards? They don't care what people think. (laughs) This is a show for eight of us.
2: Eric is also the partner of Kevin Arnovitz, who is my co-host and longtime friend, pal of Pack Your Knives podcast. I'm wearing the Pack Your Knives podcast shirt. As I'm speaking, he's also been... um, sprinkled here and there on the podcast. And he, he joined us for one of the dinners there. And I had to, I have to ask you, Eric, is Kevin also a Broadway fanatic or theater fanatic, or is he just merely tolerant like myself?
0: I don't even know if I'd use the word tolerant. I think it it has been, um, (laughs) this is definitely uh, primarily a solo pursuit. Now I will say, especially when it comes to musicals, right? I I think I've gotten Kevin to to one musical in our seven years of a relationship. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. We do go see a lot of straight plays, no pun intended together. (laughs) We also actually have quite a wonderful track record of seeing terrible theater on his birthday. Um, year after year, we have spent thousands of dollars on tickets to terrible shows <laughs> to celebrate his birthday. It's really become something of a tradition now.
1: What was the worst of them?
0: This is going to be a little controversial because it did win the Tony for best play. But we went to see, at my insistence, the inheritance, <laughs> the two-part big sort of like Angels in America wannabe that won the Tony for Best Play, I think, what was it now, last year? And I had insisted we go. I had said it was this big production. We had to see it if we wanted to be good gays. And we get there at, at two, two nights, committed to two nights, pre-sale prices, and honestly we're like looking at each other like what have we done with ourselves so so i definitely would say the inheritance walter you're shaking your head are you are you disagreeing
4: well i've now put you in a column in my head that you're one of those gays got it yeah
3: (laughs) we actually went for 17 episodes without insulting any gay people also so no 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 only
4: the gays may insult the gays you people just stay out of it thank you
3: (laughs) oh fair enough listen before we start talking seriously ha about the Tony Awards, I need to ask Jordan and Tom a very basic question, which has kind of a trick answer. If you think about it, you'll get it. Who is the biggest star on Broadway? It's a simple question. It's a very, very simple answer. Once you hear the answer, you'll know why the answer is true.
2: As someone who has Lin-Manuel Miranda playing nonstop between Vivo and Encanto um, and, and Hamilton in our house, I have a five-year-old and a two year old. I'm gonna say Lynn Manuel Miranda. Am I totally off base here? Is that You just, are wrong. Is that insane?
1: No, that's that's a fine answer, Jordan. What would you The say? answer is a Steam director Sam Gold, who I grew up with and went to my and, and hung out with uh until uh he moved away to start pursuing acting in uh went into the city in ninth grade. So it is Sam. What a flex by
2: you. I mean, I don't even know who that is, but I can Eric tell knows. that it was just a name drop.
1: I mean, I don't know if I'd outrank Lin Manuel
0: Miranda with him, but yeah, he's a very big deal.
3: <laughs> well, those were good answers, but I served you up a question where the answer was so easy because it's in his name. The biggest star on Broadway is so big. It's literally his name. It's the star of the Music Man, Huge Jackman. Yes, Huge Jackman is
1: the biggest star. Can we? Where's that mute button again?
3: Yeah.
2: Can we make sure that Mike is not working? Yeah, that was just awful. Yeah. Will you just spend a minute on that?
3: (laughs) Well, because you're drawing it out
2: To make a
1: huge, huge joke?
3: Yeah, huge. It's huge Jackman. He's huge. Let me ask our guest a serious question. The Tony Awards have a reputation for being of the most, uh, of, of the various awards and award shows and programs, the most democratic. They take seriously this idea that you're bringing theater to people who might not see much at all other than watching the Tony Awards themselves. And it also seems like um, they're not necessarily as front-running as some of the other shows. Um, Do you you buy that at all? Uh, Do you think the Tony Awards show is a little bit more prone to surprises or to introducing things and events to people that might have had no idea what they were looking at? Uh, Except that they watched the Tony Award show. What, What do you think of that idea?
4: Well, there's a there's a line in the musical Gypsy when Rose is trying to get her kids into a show and the woman who's blocking her basically basically won't let her in. And she's saying New York is the capital of the entertainment world. And Rose answers back. New York is the capital of New York. (laughs) <laughs> the Tonys are a very New York-centric thing, and it's about the professional theater in those X number of blocks in the center of Manhattan. And yes, it has a national impact, but the national impact is generally controlled by the producers who want to take one of those shows and tour them throughout the country. So the voting block of the Tonys includes many of the money people who make those decisions and they will vote often for shows that they know will tour well so that will get a best musical a best revival a best play that will influence those votes that will not influence the voting of the acting if you look at the way the acting voting is done with the tonies over the years you get more often a person who isn't immersed in that particular theater season will listen to the people or watch if you can get them to watch it. And they won't know some of the names of the people who won because they are bona fide actors who have really paid their dues and who arguably did the best performance of the season.
0: And I think also, I mean, when I was growing up, um, I think the Tony Awards did function as this incredible introduction to a lot of theater. Um, I think this is probably different in the YouTube Era, But I think for a lot of people who don't live in New York, who have never traveled to New York, it really is this kind of crash course in the season um, because the performances are so central to the show. And one thing that I've been very interested to follow is, you know, here in L.A., there's a lot of debate about the Oscars every year and how much the Oscars should lean into people who love the Oscars and how much they should try to draw in. Audiences who don't care about the movies being nominated, right? This is why every year you see like TikTok stars presenting Oscars or um, Sean White presenting an Oscar, and people in, in in Hollywood are like tearing their hair out. But the show's producers will tell you like this is our best chance at trying to essentially trick people into caring about the awards. And the Tonys have, I think, always been about the diehards, and and the show really, I mean, to, to Walter's point, like doesn't really care if you've not heard of these people and and, not, and don't really... They're not going to sort of trot out some celebrity who has nothing to do with the theater just because they want to hopefully convince a couple people watching to, to like stay Hugh tuned. Like Hugh Jackman? A huge, well, I mean, Hugh Jackman is like... he's. I mean, he's such a... He's such a boon to something like the Tonys because he is some he's he's like authentically a star in both worlds. He's like the biggest crossover they've got. But uh, but most people watching the Tonys like myself, like Hugh Jackman, always happy to see him. But like when Audra McDonald comes out on stage, it's like, oh, my God, it's like, you know, set the TiVo. Right. So there's always been this kind of like insider that that I think really kind of bucks what a lot of other award shows are trying to do.
4: Yeah. And don't forget, don't forget that there are thousands of eleven and twelve-year-old theater kids sitting on their sofas next to their grandmas watching this show. And it is, it is literally lighting a flame inside of them because they are seeing Patty Lapone for the first time. They are seeing Hugh Jackman sing and dance for the first time. And it changes their lives. It absolutely
3: does. I don't think the Grammys or much less the oscars play play that role at all if they ever did i mean by the time by the time people are watching the grammys they've heard those songs they've seen them a million times on videos on tiktoks and, and they're actually even i think another step removed from the movies right they've not only seen or heard about the movies they know what the narrative is supposed to be about the movies right whereas um, yeah whether you're watching stage scenes or musical performances it is really. that's what I was wondering. It really does seem that that it, not just an introduction, but possibly an inspirational introduction. Um, that would seem to indicate that um, there's a lot more chance for underdogs or for the awards to be to, underdogs to win, or for the awards to be spread out in the acting categories as opposed to the best play or best musical or best revival categories. Would you guys agree with that?
0: Yes. yeah, it's much it's much more rare to have a sweep. Um, at the Tonys than it is in, at the Oscars, I think.
3: And what do we think, is there one show that those producers that Eric mentioned want to take around the country, want to be the regional slash national breakout hit that they want mm-hmm. to tour with? this year it's already booked it's six they all want six and it's already
0: booked (laughs) for 24 cities across the country and the michael jackson musical probably also has a lot of touring potential too but but walter to your point i don't think either of those are going to win best musical they are not
2: explain this to me so one has already been signed sealed and delivered for for a big tour and then there's another one with michael jackson but those aren't the frontrunners. Who is the front runner? The frontrunner is the Pulitzer Prize
4: winning musical, A Strange Loop. A musical that will probably alienate as many middle class viewers as it will delight young people because it is very queer, very edgy. It has a score that doesn't sound like traditional Broadway at all. And it is smart, smart, smart. And unfortunately, when I was in New York and I had my tickets to see it. COVID canceled the performance and I didn't get to see strange loop and I am super
0: bitter about it. Mm, I hate to say this. I did see it a couple of weeks ago. It is everything that you said. Very, very smart. And I think it's actually, it's a perfect musical for a show about underdogs because I think it's expected to win. expected to be the big winner. It's probably going to win best musical, best book, best director and best actor. But so in many ways, it doesn't seem like an underdog, but it is very much an underdog because as as Walter said, it's a musical about a big black musical playwright who is writing a musical about a big black musical playwright. It's this self-referential, very heady, as I mean, very, very edgy, like lots of simulated sex on stage, lots of just sort of like references to the deepest, darkest corners of the gay psyche. Um, and and yet it's been completely it's been celebrated even heading into the Tony's as, as Walter said, it won the Pulitzer when it was off Broadway. So it's kind of come in as the front runner, despite being a musical that is really non-traditional in every respect.
3: Now I'm gonna ask you a question I should know the answer to, but I don't have there been other or many other or any other plays or musicals that won a Pulitzer Prize going into the Tony Award season? Because it really seems to me like the thumbs on the scale now, right? I mean, it already won a Pulitzer Prize, right?
4: I think Hamilton did because it opened on Broadway in like August, and the Tonys don't happen until the following June. So I think the Pulitzer thing had already happened. It's just they're on two different calendars. The Tony, the Tony season is June one to May 31st, and the Pulitzer season is a, a calendar
0: year. But I also, think, I also think Rent won the Pulitzer when it was off-Broadway and then transferred to Broadway and won the Tony. So that, yeah. I think that would, be, that would be the same track.
3: One great thing about uh, Strange Loop is how you guys are talking about how self-referential it is, and, and so many of the songs kind of announce their subjects as their subjects, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it draws from so many influences i mean michael r jackson as a real real outsider um listened to all kinds of music read all kinds of things and has incorporated them into something that is so distinctively about him and about the black experience but it's from all over i mean strange loop the title itself is from a liz fair song and you know he has said in many interviews like what you, you don't think i would be influenced by a straight <laughs> young white woman while i was and it's all it's called in there which is which is kind of cool. That's interesting. It is it is true underdog material, right? Since we're talking about underdogs. Yeah. So who walks that line like huge Jackman between the insider, the outsider, between mass success, who's actually doing people a favor by being in their shows financially, I mean, and also an insider critical darling favorite. And how will that affect the awards? Like I know. The last time there were awards, it was during COVID. I, I don't even remember who won anything, but apparently Mary Louise Parker won then. She's up again now. People seem to love her performance. I have not seen How I Learned to Drive. Um, it's one of those things. I'm wondering if I can go and take it in order to see it. Um, what, what do we think? Is she one of those? Uh, she popular enough to be called popular, but insider enough to also be called like the Broadway darling. I think she carries more weight on
4: stage than she does on film. I mean, you have to really, you know, you loved Weeds when Weeds was on, but Weeds was on Showtime. So it wasn't like it was seen by millions and billions of people. Do not
1: discount her role on the Wing, yeah, the in the West Wing. Yeah, she was great in the West Wing. Baby,
4: I love the West Wing, but I got to tell you, there the number of people that, must have stopped watching The West Wing after the third season, and they just don't even know what happened in the final seasons. It's so weird. So
0: they didn't get to her, yeah.
4: Sam Rockwell is starring in American Buffalo on Broadway, and he is Tony-nominated, and so I think that goes both ways. And Patty LuPone is the rare Broadway diva who has cred... Pretty much everywhere. If you were to say to Mr. and Mrs. Johnson in Iowa about a Broadway person, they might actually know that name. And Anthony just said, "Shut up, Patty Lupone," which is his favorite line from Will and Grace. It's a long story. I won't tell you.
0: <laughs>
1: Excuse me. Hello,
3: <laughs> Jack. Patty Lupone is trying to get your attention.
0: Would you mind if I sang? Shut up, Patty Lupone. Oh! Shut your brassy, magnificent trap! I don't want to hear you sing! I don't want to cut your hair! And I certainly don't want to hear you singing while I'm cutting your hair! Got it? Now I'm talking to my best friend, so stand back, Buenos Aires!
2: People either love me or they hate me.
4: And then Jesse Tyler Ferguson, who was on Modern Family for 700 years, started on Broadway, goes back and does theater every summer, and he's nominated and likely to win a Tony this year for the revival of Take Me Out. So those are probably the ones that the TV viewer, as they're, if they happen to, well, no one's flipping around the dial anymore. I don't know how people watch TV, but but if they see Jesse Tyler Ferguson, they might actually pause and watch the
0: show. Yeah, I think, you know, and Jesse Tyler Ferguson and Mary Louise Parker, both three named, I, I think they, they are really good examples of these people who have had crossover appeal, but I think the theater community still considers their own. Mary Louise Parker winning so soon after last year, I, which I think she probably will, just sort of speaks to... How beloved she is there. Um, That's one thing the Tonys seem to have no problem with. You know, in the Oscars, they like to space out the awards. They don't like to give you two Oscars like too close together. The Tonys don't seem to have that concern. Like they think if you if you gave the best performance in that category, you should get the award that year. Um, So I do think it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt her that she won so recently. Um, I think Laurie Metcalf, who's not nominated this year, she sort of has a similar kind of position too, where she's obviously well-known for movies like Lady Bird and shows like Roseanne, but every time she comes to Broadway, it's like, oh my God, she's come back.
3: So the, the Tony Awards don't mind giving out consecutive awards, which I think, tell me what you think about this. I have a theory that means that most actors win for what are actually their best roles, whereas because the Academy Awards don't like to do them too consecutively, you'll find a lot of uh, actors and actresses winning for you look back in 10 years and say, oh, they were way better in this other role, but they just, the Academy wasn't ready to reward them again yet.
0: Yeah, I think that there's, I think that the Tonys are less beholden to narrative. And and that was like one thing that I learned when I moved out to LA and I realized that these Oscar campaigns are campaigns and it is about like months in advance setting the narrative that it's you know it's jessica chastain's turn to to win an oscar or we we missed the chance to give this actor an an oscar for that really good performance let's let's give him one for this pretty good performance
2: or makeup call
0: these makeup awards and and the tonys maybe by virtue of just not having an ecosystem just don't, I mean, I do think there's probably examples and, and Walter could probably name like five off the top of his head of it feeling like the Tony's got a little uh, stardust in their eyes and and wanting to give awards to like the the actor or actress who is coming to make a big splash on Broadway. But I think for the most part, it really seems a little bit more workaday than that.
4: It's much less common on with the Tony Awards for there to be a featured actor or a best actress in a play award that is given that is seen as a lifetime achievement award. But when it does happen, as it did a couple of years back when Cicely Tyson won best actress in a play, it was so freaking deserved that how could you not give the Tony to her that would have been a blasphemy because in the Oscars you you can go back just through the the Rolodex here and you can sit there and you can watch Burt Reynolds for Boogie Nights and Eddie Murphy for Dream Girls and Lauren Bacall for The Mirror Has Two Faces who are sitting there waiting for their Lifetime Achievement Award and losing and so it doesn't happen as much at the Tonys as it does at the Oscars well thank god Martin Landau finally won when he got goddamn right for Ed Wood.
0: For Ed Wood. Yeah. There's an example also, the best performance in the category.
4: Yeah. But for every Martin Lando, there's a Don Michi in Cocoon. I'll leave it there. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: Everything we're saying makes me wonder what underdogs we should actually be looking at. Best performance by leading actress in a musical. Um, the betting site that I'm looking at, she's at plus 1,000. Sutton Foster. Who doesn't love Sutton Foster? I mean, how can she not win everything? Am I wrong to ask? Why Why does she just win everything she's in? We know her from Bunhead. We know her from Younger.
0: Because sometimes she's in Shrek, the musical. <laughs> That's
4: why. And quite frankly, even though uh, I have been told that she puts a spin on Mary the Librarian that hasn't been done before, I am not interested in hearing her belt, My White Knight. It's a soprano role. Wow. I want to hear a soprano sing it. Wow, throwing shade at the husky voice. Wow, Walter, oh. Right, and when I had the opportunity to spend
3: $275 a piece for tickets to see The Music Man, I passed. Wow, speaking of which, Jordan, you saw The Music Man. did You, you did not pass. Did you enjoy the performances, the overall show?
1: It was a lovely time with my mother and my son, a real family bonding experience. I like revivals. I like older musicals. Music Man was fine. Hugh Jackman was good. Sutton Foster's good, but there wasn't, there's nothing transcendent about it. It felt a little, a little dated. Not in that it, not that I don't like musicals from that era. There's just something about it that didn't, I don't know, it didn't, it it, it doesn't hold up the way others do. Does that make any sense? Like you go to, you go see guys and dolls and it, and it, it still works. You you get into the, the theme, the era. There's something about just the whole setting there that doesn't, it just didn't connect. I wish I could describe it better. But, you know, it's not a it's not, you know, a, a dribble handoff, you know, followed by a S- Spain pick and roll. So I'm off my game.
4: In my humble opinion, the music man is the finest piece of Americana ever put
0: on stage. Period. I'm done. Wow. Wow. He said it. Yet you didn't go see it. You still wouldn't go see it because of that YouTube leak of My White Knight. No, no, no,
4: no, no. It's not just that. It's also, I don't want updated and cleaned up lyrics to Shapoopy.
2: Oh, yeah, that's
0: stupid.
4: They made too many changes. Wait, what did
2: they change in Shapoopy?
4: Okay, Shapoopy is all about putting the moves on a girl until she basically decides to go your way. I've directed The Music Man. I love that play, Up One Side and Down the Other. I don't know what the new lyrics are to Shapoopy because I read them once and I barfed and I didn't look again, (laughs) but I didn't want to see it. And I'm sure that if I had scored a pair of comps or house seats, I would have gladly gone and And I probably would have enjoyed it more than I thought. I wouldn't have sat there with my arms crossed and been grumpy the entire time. But when I had a choice of what to see and the tickets were prohibitively expensive, I said, yeah, it's it's not worth it. I have other shows I want to
1: see. So I saw six other plays. Can we talk about why this is the greatest piece of Americana ever produced in which a woman, essentially because a con man is nice to her brother, completely... In the snap of a finger, does a 180 shift on all her values and what she thinks of him without any character development? Please tell me. That is not true at all, because if you listen to the lyrics (laughs) of My White Knight, she is literally conjuring Harold Hill. She
4: brings out in Harold Hill who he needs to be. She makes him into the man that he can be, and that is why she decides to fall in love with him. Not because he tricks her. All of his tricks don't work on her.
3: So it's not like Grease. Oh, (laughs) Grease.
4: And if I could have the original stage play of Grease, man, I would be the happiest man in the world, but the movie was so popular, and all the changes they did to Greece for the movie are now part of the canon, and you can't even get the rights to the original Grease that was done in 1972. You can't get it. So you gotta interpolate all those songs for the movie and the Olivia Newton-John stuff. And so I'd rather have because the original Grease was a filthy, dirty play. Because yeah. it was it was about my mother's my mother's high school years. And my mom just looked at it and went, Oh, this is yeah, that's what it was like. My my mom was kind of
1: rizzo. I just want you to know that so mm-hmm. maze you want to say anything about grandma right here or <laughs>
3: this is all well and good and it's all excellent however a lot of these comments are li- making us like the favorites even more because their favorites they seem to be favorites for good reasons is there any are there any out of left field performances we should be looking at uh underdogs among the underdogs i'm wondering about lechans in uh, best performance by a leading actress in a play for Trouble in Mind.
4: Before you go to Best Actress in a Play, let's stay with Best Actress in a Musical. Because I agree. My money is not on Sutton Foster. She's not going to win.
0: I don't think so. I
4: think it's Sharon D. Clark. Yeah. Yeah it should be Sharon D. Clark. The only handicap is, is that it closed last fall and Tony voters have to see everything. But the real underdog is Joaquina Calacongo, who's in a, a play called Paradise Square. That's not a very good play. Um, but when I saw the the Berkeley Rep, it, it tried out on the, on the West Coast at Berkeley Rep. And I saw that and I went, this is going to go to Broadway and it's going to get attention for its choreography and for her, because they've written one of the greatest 11 o'clock numbers I've ever heard in a musical. And it Uh is a culmination of her performance, not just, and out of nowhere, this song comes. So she's my underdog that I picked to win.
0: I think so. And also I think you've hit on a major narrative of this season, which is that there are a lot of underdogs in every category because so many shows opened and closed very quickly. So, so I think you're right. If Sutton Foster has a leg up, it's just that, she's still on stage right now. And if you didn't catch, I mean, that Carolina change revival was on stage for what? Like, six days. I mean, it, it opened and closed very fast. And so you're asking you're asking voters to have a really long memory. I, I mean there's a performance in Best Actress in a play that I saw when it was out of town, Walter Deidre O'Connor in Dana H. Oh. I, which is pro- maybe the best thing I've ever best performance I've ever seen live. I saw it when it was here in in Culver City. It's this incredible, very weird performance where she plays the playwright's mother and the entire performance is lip synced to a recording that the playwright's mother did. It is unlike anything you've ever seen. It transferred to Broadway. I thought for sure she'd win the Tony, but it closed so quickly that now I worry that not enough people saw it.
4: Yeah. Everybody that I know that saw that play, and I did not get to, everybody that I know that saw it raves about it like you, Eric, and they all say, you you won't believe it going in and then you walk out of that theater and you're blown away. So if enough of those people wound up voting, she could be your and 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 um she has the the leading odds at right now at Gold Derby. She has the leading odds. She's she's a squeaker ahead of Mary Louise Parker. So it's possible.
0: Yeah, I saw how I learned to drive, and I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I mean, it's Mary Louise Parker doing Mary Louise Parker. So if, and I also think that that play has a very interesting narrative because she played the role so long ago.
4: Yeah, I saw it off Broadway when it was originally
3: you know, twenty twenty one years ago. Her and David oh. Morse. So you know what they said when uh, Eric saw that play that was oh, no. Six Days in Culver City? Said we got trouble, trouble in Culver <laughs> right. City. And that starts with C. And that rhymes with P and that stands for
1: pool. All roads lead back to huge jack. Do you know that I was about to make the same joke and now I'm truly disgusted with myself? (laughs) You should be. You should be. I wanted
2: to ask because you mentioned Gold Derby. Can you – can someone explain what Gold Derby is? Because I feel like as a sports uh, statistics guy, I feel like there's a lot of data here and I've never heard of this
4: place all gold derby is is a bunch of internet loud mouths some prognosticators got together a site uh tom i can't remember what his name is he created gold derby before the internet and he just got them together in one place where they could prognosticate together and it it achieved critical mass the same way things like rotten tomatoes and um, imdb and everything it's it's a triumph of nerd internet and it's a bunch of people who uh before they had a An internet to sound off on. Basically, we're just people who sat at cocktail parties and held court. And now they have the internet to do that.
2: Is it something that is very exposed to groupthink? I would imagine there's some groupthink going on here where people look to what other people are voting for and then follow suit.
4: They've wisely divided it into the critics that are basically gold derby certified and the public. And the public is the comment section of the internet. They can do whatever they want. You know, they can vote something up and vote something down. So there's two platforms for you to look at on Gold Derby but the odds that they put up are essentially the odds that come from
0: their registered, these are our 150 prognosticators. Walter, I don't know if this is your experience, but I have found just in general, I'm very unsatisfied with the Tony Award prediction ecosystem in general. I feel like there's a million places to go to hear from experts on who's going to win an Oscar. It's very hard to wrap my arms around who's going to win a Tony. There's a, a
4: message board called all that chat. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And
4: it's from the early days
0: of the internet. That is a dangerous place. theater
4: Twitter, now, I don't know these people. Many of them I've never met or even interacted with, but it's literally like being at the worst cocktail party of a bunch of bitter queens and no one is telling them not
0: to say anything. and they all do it. You know what honestly? just go to joe allen's at 10 15 on a you night, and it's the same it's the same thing suddenly you're trading notes with the guy next to you and whether or not patty lapone holds the last note in ladies who lunch every night or just some nights right
4: exactly <laughs> so just as in any any discipline in your sports in your film whatever there are these hardcore just nerd but gay nerds are worse than any other kind of nerd people they're just the worst so it's it's great fun to sort of listen to them and watch Them interact and tear each other apart, but do not enter and expect to participate without full armor on. You won't
3: make it. Yeah. Let's move off the nerd, gay nerd, Lord of the Flies, for one second. I got I got a couple of quick questions before we bring this all to a sadly premature halt. We could talk for hours. I believe we already have talked for hours. We could talk for days or years. First, Eric, I have to ask you just quick, up or down, what's the deal? David Paymer. No love. The man has put up with Billy Crystal's shtick for, what is it, 25 years?
0: Oh, right, 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 right. Last I saw, he's at plus 2,000 for Mr. Saturday Night. To be honest, I'm not convinced Mr. Saturday Night is a real show. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. When I saw billboards for it in New York, I did a New York theater trip. Well, it was a work trip that... I turned into a theater trip a couple of weeks ago and I saw these signs for it that said it was bringing laughter back to Broadway. And I thought, well, where the hell did it go? I mean, we were, always, we we're always laughing on Broadway. I, I'm, I'm not convinced it's the real show. Eric and
2: Walter, I'm on this site, Gold Derby, and I'm, I'm seeing that the most open race or at least the biggest flattened field for an award is – the Best Play Revival, Take Me Out and For Colored Girls and How I Learned to Drive, Trouble in Mind, American Buffalo. It has Take Me Out. It looks like a slight favorite over For Colored Girls. So can you guys handicap that one for me?
0: I think the issue there is – and and Walter, tell me what you think. It feels to me like – of those five titles, they've all been reviewed pretty similarly. How I Learned to Drive and Take Me Out probably reviewed a little bit better than the others. But there's not a real gulf between numbers one and five there with how well those those shows have been been received. I would give the edge to How I Learned to Drive just because mm. there's an interesting story behind it. Actually, and Peter, to your earlier question, it was off-Broadway 20 years ago. It won the Pulitzer then. And this is a Broadway revival with the original cast playing the roles they played 20 years ago. So there's a little bit of texture there. Take Me Out is also, I think, probably now about 20, 25 years old.
2: Baseball.
0: Gay baseball. Baseball and dicks, gentlemen. Yes. Don't forget dicks. Walter, I'm dying to know what happened to ticket sales after that video got out.
4: It was already doing well because it's in one of the smallest theaters on Broadway anyway.
0: Yeah.
3: Everyone has an excellent view. I'm going to have to elaborate just a little bit on what video we're talking about.
0: There's a famous scene in the play, several scenes, right? Several scenes set in a shower. Yeah. In the shower. I mean, it's it's about a, a gay baseball player. So you have to have some locker room scenes and they are very authentic and many actors are completely nude. And and so the, the theater has been, and in, in the 90s when the show originally premiered, this wasn't an issue, but the theaters now have been locking cell phones in those little pouches so that no one can record a video and someone leaked video of one of the shower scenes and some of the actors completely in the buff, there was all this outrage, you know, like people saying this is an invasion of privacy and the sanctity of of the theater and things. But I have to also imagine that it proved to be quite a good marketing tool for one of the core audience demographics for that show.
3: Yep. Tony Illuminati. Based on the original screenplay for bang the drum slowly. (laughs) I'm
4: sorry. Just let the silence hang, Anthony. Just let it hang (laughs) for a long time. Carry on. Carry on. on. So in terms of the Best Play Revival, the only one that doesn't have a chance is American Buffalo because David Mamet has screwed himself out of any kind of... Is he dead? No more awards ever for David Mamet on Broadway? Ever? He's such an offensive human being. Why would anybody ever want to to look at him? But The Dark Horse is trouble in mind for the Best Play Revival because it was a play written by Alice Childress that God, was it the 60s mid-60s it was and ages old and it's it was written in the 60s and it was about the troubles that uh black actors had trying to make a living as a profession on broadway and um it it was a very well-received revival that's where the where where lachance got her nomination for where chuck cooper got his nomination for but again it closed Back in the day, and I'm not sure enough people remember it. So, um, how I learned to drive or for colored girls or take me out, either one of those. I won't
3: be surprised if any of those win. All right, and who remembers the line about horse sense? It's cultivating horse sense for music man.
4: Helps you cultivate horse sense and a cool eye and a keen Which hand. Do you ever try? To? I can't do it. I used to be able to do the whole damn trouble thing, but I can't anymore. Well, we're going to
3: talk about the Belmont Stakes after this, so I just wanted somebody trying that line out, so that Maze can edit that into some kind of introduction.
1: I've got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere, and the next thing you know, your son is playing for money in a pinchback suit. And listening
4: to some big out of town Jasper Here to tell about horse race gambling Not a wholesome trotting race,
0: no But a race where they set down right on the horse
2: That was probably the highlight of underdog so far I would say, Walter and Eric But we gotta talk some horsies It's the Belmont Stakes this weekend And of course, we're gonna get a rich strike back He took the Preakness off He's coming back And I think, wait a minute What's that? Do you guys hear that? That's Vet the Bet! Let's go! Vet the Bet is back, yes! You hear it now? Bet the Bet, i prepared something here. It's the hottest new game show on the internet.
3: Guys, are you excited for bet, bet the Bet? Who's excited? The Bet! Although this is another example. Didn't Jordan suggest Betting the vet for the
1: Preakness. I think we should bet the vet. <laughs> bet the vet. Which horse is healthiest?
3: As
2: opposed to Dick Bavetta, which is kind of like a third variant of vet the bet and, and <laughs> oh vet the God. bet and bet the vet and b- Dick Bavetta. Anyway, We the People is being considered the betting favorite for Belmont Stakes. And what's odd about We the People is he—that horse has not been in either of the Triple Crown races, kind of like a Triple Crown rookie for the Belmont Stakes. And my question to you, the panelists, Peter and Jordan, since 2010, how many of the 12 Belmont Stakes winners were rookies at the Triple Crown? Is it A, one of those 12? Is it B, two of those 12? Is it C, three of those 12, D, four of those 12, or five, E, five of those 12? Again, how many of the Belmont winners since 2010 have not participated or contested the Preakness or the Kentucky Derby of that year, like we the people? Jordan, I'll start with you. Again?
1: Yes, because you're trailing in this standings. Yeah, well, then I'm going to be going first every week, aren't I? Yes. Okay, I'm pretty confident that it's one or two. I know there have been fresh legs brought in for the Belmont, but I I, I don't feel like they've won all that often. I'm going to go B-2. Peter, your response?
3: I think the number is probably higher than it used to be in the past. Horses get rotated in and out, and trainers and owners seem to give up if they don't have a chance to win the whole thing and this is the third race. I will say C, three. The answer is drum roll please. Horses,
2: hoofs hitting the dirt. The answer is D, four. Oh, Neither of you got wow. it. 2019 uh, uh. Sir Winston, 2014 Tonalist, 2011 Ruler on Ice, and 2010 Drosselmeyer all did not race in the Derby or the Preakness and still finished first in the Belmont Stakes. So we the people, as the favorite, I thought it would be kind of a dumb pick to go with the guy, the horse that hasn't participated in either of the other Triple Crown races. But according to history, it's not that rare that this actually happens. But that is not my pick for the Belmont Stakes. I've got a pick. It's Skippy Longstocking. Welcome (laughs) back to the triple crowd. 20 to 1 odds. I am very excited about Skippy Longstocking, and I'm going to bet the house on Skippy. I don't suggest you do that too. But do you guys have long shot picks or your picks? I I know early voting doesn't appear to be in the Belmont Stakes, Jordan. So do you have another horse you're riding?
1: I have no long shot, but I am going with the favorite, We the people. Mm. Because just as I told you, that early voting was essential to American democracy. So too are we the people, stewards of that democracy, which is under attack on a daily basis from forces aimed to divide us. But a horse... (laughs) Stewards, A horse like we the people will bring this country together and unite us for one fine weekend.
3: Get the popular vote back in the saddle. I think there are actual analytical reasons to use in picking. Up. Skippy Longstocking, you're saying? I'm just trying to finish your sentence. Yeah, Because there's only eight horses in the Belmont. They're bunched together. The longest shot is 20 to one. There's no real long shot, which suggests that there's no real favorite. I mean, Rich Strike, one of the favorites, uh, the same people who are making Rich Strike one of the favorites less than a month ago had him at 80 to one in the Kentucky Derby. So as Warner Wolf used to say, come on, like, what do they know? Um, These horses are bunched together in the odds. There's only eight of them. I think that always means there's going to be value in picking the long shot, especially if all he has to do, or she has to do, is finish in the top three. Now, let me say one other thing. The Belmont, of course, is one and a half miles long. Horses are either bred for speed or stamina. There are measurements, indices, indicating whether horses have been bred for speed or stamina. The most prominent is called the dosage. No, that's not a Bob Baffert joke. Ah! That's actually no laugh. That's no laughing matter. Actually, it might even be called the dosage because it's originally French, but I believe it's the dosage. This looks at the horse's last four generations of great great grandparents, um, you know, their their pedigree, if you will, and looks to see how the horses in that group were bred. If they're bred for speed or stamina, and then creates a big weighted average. The median dosage of all horses thoroughbreds in North America is about 2.4. The lower means you're bred for more speed. The higher means you're bred for more stamina. So
2: we want to see stamina here. We, we want to see ideally both, but in the
3: Belmont, you want stamina. We're looking for the lower dosage. Another measure is the center of distribution, which is a different weighting on the weighted average. Anyway, it's one horse in this race that comes out very well on both those scores. That's Golden Glider,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: he's the twenty to one long shot. He's bred for stamina. Now, if you look at a horse that's not bred for speed, there's always a chance. Like like with me, like are you bred for beauty or are you bred for brains? Sometimes that's not the right scale because they're not exact opposites, and you can end up with neither. <laughs> so if a horse has a, a low speed score or a low speed metrics, that just might mean they're not good for racing. It doesn't necessarily mean they have super stamina, but Golden Glider's great-great-grandfather on his mom's side is Aladar, who you might remember finished second to Affirmed in every Triple Crown race when Affirmed won the Triple Crown about 40 years ago, and he's a closer. That's his running style. He hangs back and he closes, and that's really going to be really helpful in a a mile-and-a-half race because he's not going to go set some kind of breakneck pace, and he's been at Belmont since May training for this race specifically, which he qualified for by winning um, an earlier race. So as soon as he qualified for the Belmont, they moved him there to work out. So golden glider, 20 to one, and a time when there's no 90 to one shot even in the race or anything like that, go for the long shot because there really is no favorite.
2: Skippy long stocking. This horse has the stamina, golden glider. Mays in the chat says, the winner of the last two races hasn't tried to defend their win. That's so weird. Mays, this is all, you know, load management You know, the load management era is killing the horse industry. Come on. We can't have these horses taking races off to protect their health. Come on. Come on. Yeah, fewer horse races he's calling for instead of 82-game season. Let's just do the triple crown is the single crown. That's what Mays is advocating for. So we don't have these horses bowing out every time they win. Would Sandy Koufax even pitch for the pennant these days?
3: The answer is yes. Of course he would. But still, I know what you mean
2: pennant trying to think of a pennant pun to go transition into golf well
1: there's a flag
2: a flag oh yeah 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 you gotta hit the flag gotta hit the stick gotta hit the hole is there a horse you're riding in the u.s open which is coming up here a little preview a little teaser for the u.s open not this coming weekend but the next one jordan
1: what are you looking at so next week's show we're gonna dig in deep with some some golf sleepers some picks some fun bets um be sure to be with us for that. But I, I've got my eye on someone right now that I'm gonna I'm gonna lay some money on a week and a half in advance, and and then okay. I'll, I'm gonna fill out my card a little bit later on DraftKings. He's plus twenty five hundred right now. Elsewhere, you can get him about to plus twenty eight hundred. It's it varies. He's a, he's he's a, a young buck from a, a little known school somewhere in the south. Yes, I believe his name is Will. Zalatoris. Oh, my God. Wow. What a day on underdogs. Tom, we've mocked you in the past, but his time is coming. He's due for a major. He's played great this season. Finished tied sixth at the Masters. Finished second at PGA, as we know. Just last week at the Memorial, he was tied for fifth. He is a fantastic player. He will be in the mix. I will be putting a lot of different Will Zalatoris bets on my card for the U.S. Open.
2: Hey, is there a Duke Blue Devil that I can bet on? Because I won't. I won't do it. I won't do it, Jordan. I am so excited that you finally jumped on the Will Zalatoris bandwagon since I've been Tooting that horn for what? How many How many of these uh, majors have we done on this show? Like at least 7,000. Will Zalatoris, plus 2,500 on DraftKings right now. Jump all over that. And if you haven't jumped on that, go throw some money on Cameron Young, also a Demon Deacon who finished third in the last major behind Will Zalatoris. And Webb Simpson is at plus 5,000. So if you want to put some money on a long shot Deke who has already won the Open – Go get Webb Simpson at plus 5,000.
1: I will say this. Did I have money on Scotty Scheffler to win the Masters? Yes, yes, I did. Did I have money on Justin Thomas to win the PGA? Yes, I did. So if I'm leading you in the Will Zalatoris direction, follow my lead.
3: Well, that's, that's one possibility. The other possibility is this is just a horrible case of Stockholm Syndrome. Yes. Where you've been locked behind a microphone listening to Tom for four months now. And now you're just, it's like learned helplessness. You just like, I, I too would have picked Will Zalatoris, not for any good reason, just because just keeps beating the demon deacon drum. And it's just like,
1: who else are we going
2: to well, pick? Well, when they, when they finish two and three, I mean, yeah, come it's on.
1: not like I'm picking Byron Buxton for anything here. Okay. There's some actual <laughs> reason to pick Will Zalatoris.
3: Wow. Well, I'll just say this. I'm looking ahead to June 22nd when the Wolfson History Prize winner will be announced. That's right. That's the United Kingdom's most prestigious history prize. The shortlist has been announced. You can bet on who's likely to win online, but we'll go into that next time. Will we? For all of you who have had enough of Wake Forest golfers.
1: Will we? That is an underdog that we will talk about that, but I'm picking the favorite in that one.
2: <laughs> thank you everybody for listening to underdogs this week jam-packed show and thank you to walter 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 mays and eric Schwartzel from the wall street journal go buy his book the red carpet which you find in bookstores everywhere including online and amazon and jordan peter thank you so much and we'll talk next week
1: Buxton still hitting 217 with a 298 on base percentage.
3: Right now, right now, what's your under over on his batting average at the end of the season? 230. I'll take the over right now. How much are we betting? Five points and bet the bet. (laughs) I'm sorry. Now that's too rich for my blood. (laughs)